Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, my name is Bryce. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, excited to look at this passage with you. It just occurred to me um, that this was the first passage that I ever preached on in front of a like real live human congregation when I was uh, in grad school almost 20 years ago. So um, hopefully this will go a lot better than that did, and <laughs> we'll uh, be able to talk about that in 20 years or something. I don't know. Uh, so okay, when somebody says, "How are you doing?" You might have had this conversation today. There are two acceptable responses to that question, how are you? And the first is fine, right? And fine is just like a non-answer. It's sort of like a polite way of saying, I don't have anything to say about that topic. But I think the more, the more popular option is <sighs> busy, <laughs> right? If you don't believe me, try something else, and people will be like, what's wrong with this person? Why isn't, why isn't he busy? Um, Busyness has become this almost like a status symbol. It's a way that we communicate to each other. People think I'm really important. Uh, I don't know who somebody, I heard somebody else say this, and I can't remember who it is. I've been saying it long enough that it feels like my own. But busyness in our culture is a boast disguised as a lament. When somebody says, how are you doing? You say, oh man, I have just been so busy lately. On the surface, I'm complaining, right? But below the surface, what I'm really communicating to you is, I am in such high demand. <laughs> um, people want my time, they email me, they text me, they schedule appointments with me all the time. I am just such an incredibly valuable person. I just, I just can't escape it. And so we have this really strange relationship with work and with rest, where on the one hand, we all have this sense that if we could get some more rest, it would probably be a great thing for us, and yet it feels elusive. I mean, think about this. Think about if three years ago, somebody would have said to you, okay, there's going to be this season where you're not going to leave your house, <laughs> and you're not going to waste time with a commute, and you're not going to have to take your kids to all of their activities anymore, and your boss is going to be a little bit more low-key about things getting done on time, and you can like, work from home in your pajamas. You don't have to do anything or go anywhere. If three years ago somebody had made you that promise, we would all be like, that sounds awesome, right? <laughs> and yet the experience of that <laughs> has been not so awesome. <laughs> In some ways, it's only served to like heighten our sense of anxiety about what in the world is going on in this inner sense of restlessness that we all have. Why is that? Today, we are continuing this series. We started a couple weeks ago in the Gospel of Luke, and we're talking about the Sabbath and, and work and rest, and um, the Sabbath Maybe a word that you've never even heard before, um, but in the background here are the Ten Commandments and really the Fourth Commandment where um, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he brought down the Ten Commandments from God on tablets of stone and the Fourth Commandment. Right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment says, "'Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy.'" Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and it, and it goes on. The Sabbath is this weekly 
day of rest that God's people, uh, really since um, 1400 B.C., have observed. And in the Old Testament, God's people observed the Sabbath on, the, on Saturday, on the seventh day, the last day of the week. And then in the New Testament, after the resurrection, Jesus uh, rose from the dead on Sunday, and Christians have celebrated the Sabbath or the Lord's Day on Sunday and the first day of the week in remembrance of, of the resurrection. But we have, um, so we have this kind of in the background in this discussion, but we have such a strange relationship to work and rest in our culture that I, I think it's really hard for us to even understand honestly what's going on. And I know that many people, we have probably even in this room different attitudes towards work. And some of us may be looking for work. Some of us might be, might be saying, you know, I really would like to have... Um, you know, a, a, a better job, a different job, only one job. Um, but I think in general, for most Americans, the problem is more that we have an inability to rest. And so what is Jesus saying about rest? And can Jesus offer us real rest? And if he can, what would that actually look like? So look with me at this passage because it's all here. And it's hard for us to understand because we have such a sort of confused and convoluted attitude towards work and towards rest. And so if we're going to begin to experience the rest that Jesus offers, the first thing I think we have to do as we come to this passage is we have to acknowledge the confusion. We have to acknowledge that we have a really confused and convoluted relationship towards both work and rest. So what's happening in this passage is that Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field on the Sabbath. And as they're walking, some of the disciples reach out and they pick a stalk of grain and they rub it in between their hands to separate like the, 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 the wheat from the, the chaff, the, like the kernel, the husk, and they eat it. And the Pharisees say, why are you breaking the Sabbath? And what they're referring to here is the halakha, which is um, sort of like a commentary on the Bible. Um, where it would, would take kind of the, the, you know, one of the commandments and say, now this is how you do this, how you observe this commandment. And so um, the halakha at the time listed 39 types of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath, including reaping grain. And so the Pharisees say, you are violating the Sabbath by harvesting grain. And Jesus' response is like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, reaping, like they're picking a stock. No, he doesn't say that, right? Um, and I think it's really informative to us that Jesus doesn't argue with the Pharisees about whether they are or are not violating the Sabbath. He doesn't say, this is not reaping, they're not harvesting grain here, nor does he say, oh, we don't follow those rules anymore. He doesn't say either of those things. Instead, he's pointing out that the Pharisees have taken God's good gift to his people, a weekly day of rest. I remember, I don't know why I remember this, when I was in Spanish class in eighth grade, I remember my Spanish teacher saying, if you want to have a lot, like, a really cush life, what you do is learn Spanish and get a job for an American agency in a Spanish-speaking country because you will have a day off almost every day of the week. But here, what we're seeing is that God gives his people a holiday every day of the week, every, or every, sorry, every, a day, every week. We have a holiday every week. And the Pharisees have made it a burden. They've taken the good gift of God and they've turned it into a burden. 
And what they're doing is they're taking the deep-seated unrest that every human experiences, and they're saying you can silence that deep-seated unrest if you just follow these 39 rules. And we hear that, and you know, we think, oh, those ancient and traditional people with their legalistic tendencies and their rule-following, how, how, you know, how sad, how, how quaint, how old-fashioned they must have been. But we make the same kinds of mistakes. And we also have a really messed up view of work and rest. Uh, you know, we talk about, have you heard this phrase? Work-life balance. Work-life balance. What does that imply? It implies that work isn't part of life. And that the, different, the, the thing to do is to try to get a a balance between your life and, and your work, which is a part of your life. It doesn't make any sense. We live in a society where we have, on the one hand, more leisure time than any human society that has ever lived on the face of the planet. We live in a time where we have more expendable income for leisure than at any time of any society at any time in human history. And yet... We are the most workaholic culture that has ever existed. And think about how confusing it is to even figure out how that works. <laughs> how, how can we both have more free time and be more workaholic than, than, than we've ever been, and yet every measure uh, points to that reality? This week I was reading a book called um, The Power of Full Engagement. It's a book on leadership for this class. I'm, taking and the leaders are what they're or the, the authors what they're doing is they're talking about if you want to perform at sort of the highest level or at your highest potential whether you know in whatever sphere in work in in sports and in, in, in whatever it is that the key to performing at the top of your ability is managing your energy and so they say that the key is not putting in longer hours than everyone else but actually startlingly it's developing the rhythm of work and then pausing to rest, to recover. It's shocking what science can discover, <laughs> and what God has been saying to his people for thousands of years. But they talk about this phenomenon called karoshi. And karoshi is a Japanese word that means death by overwork. And um, karoshi is a phenomenon that the Japanese government first uh, noticed in 1969 and typically what it looks like is somebody in their 40s dying of a heart attack or a stroke while sitting at their desk. Death from overwork. And in 1987, the Japanese Ministry of Labor began publishing statistics on Kiroshi. And they found that tens of thousands of deaths each year are now attributed to working too long without sufficient time to recover. And here's the shocking thing as I read this book in this you know, multi-paragraph section, this is how they finished. No comparable research on the health or consequences of, over, of overwork exists in the United States, but America is the only country in the world in which employees work more hours per week than Japan. So here's the picture. We work long hours, and ostensibly, we tell ourselves that we're doing that to provide financially and yet, by any objective standard, we have accomplished that goal. And yet, there is still this sort of inner sense of turmoil and unrest that we all wrestle with. 
and we continue to work ourselves into unhealth, and at some point we have to acknowledge that something else is going on, that we're working not simply to provide, but to prove ourselves in the hope that just a little bit more, a little bit more energy, a little bit more time will help us to finally be able to say, look, I'm valuable. Look, I'm worth it. One of my favorite um, headlines from The Onion, if you don't know, The Onion is a satirical newspaper. My favorite headlines is this, today is the day that they find out you are a fraud. Here's the first paragraph. Well, experts agree you've been remarkably successful so far at keeping up the ruse that you're capable and a worthwhile individual. A new report out this week indicates that today is the day they finally figure out you're a complete and utter fraud. One of the most popular headlines in the history of The Onion. Why? Because it resonates with all of us. It resonates with all of us. Today is the day that everybody else finds out that I'm faking it. Or as St. Augustine put it, 1,600 years ago, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in God. There's a deep-seated unrest in each of us that cannot be cured by a day off or a vacation. And what we need is a sort of REM rest of the soul. You know, um, sleep experts say that you need eight hours of sleep a night, but if you were to take eight one-hour naps a day, you'd be a wreck tomorrow because it takes time to get that sort of REM sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep, that deep sleep that actually refreshes your, refreshes your body. And in the same way, there is, a, there is a deep REM sleep of the soul that we need. And it isn't found simply by working hard and then occasionally knocking off. There's something else going on. Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in God. There are three factors, I think, in, modern, in our modern world that make this especially relevant for us. The first, is, the first two are pretty, pretty well, I was going to say pretty simple, but maybe not. Technology, right? Um, technology has made it so that we can work everywhere, <laughs> or so that we can work anywhere. And when we work anywhere, it's really hard to not work everywhere. Right? And so we don't just work at the office, we don't just work uh, when we go to meetings, we work when we get home, we work when we're in bed, we work when we first get up. Technology means that we work more and more and more. The second thing is, a mod- is the kind of the modern identity and the way that we think about ourselves. You know, in a traditional culture, you get your identity and your validation and your sense of worth uh, from your family or from your tribe or from your church or from your profession. But the modern identity, we are the first society in the history of humanity that says you get your identity by proving yourself, by achieving your own dignity, value, and worth. And so there's this constant drive to do more and to work harder and longer. And then thirdly, I think that, that um, this, this drive to, to work and to avoid rest is complicated by just the nature of our work. I mean, if you think about it, if you lived in an agrarian society, you work with your hands, you do physical work, and in that society, there are two things that are true. And the first is that the, uh, the most elite, the most privileged people are the ones who can afford to not do manual labor. And so in, in an agrarian society, you show your status through resting. 
The second thing that's true in that sort of a society is that if you do physical labor, it's really easy to see what you've done. If you're a farmer, you go and you plow the field and then it's done. You can turn around and see, this is what I accomplished today. If you're a carpenter, you build a wall and then the wall is built and you can look at it and say, that's what I've done and now I'm done for the day. But most of us today, not exclusively, I know, but most of us today uh, don't engage in physical work. We don't make, I don't think, I, I know hardly anybody who makes a thing, right? Where you say, what do you do for your job? And like, I can't understand what half of you do for your jobs because show me something. <laughs> like, where's the thing that you made? We don't make things, right? We work in a knowledge economy, and when you do knowledge work, you can't turn around at the end of the day and say, here's the pile of things that I made today, right? We sit at a desk and type on a computer, and it doesn't look like anything. And so it's really, really hard to know when you're done. Every Monday, I have like this journal where I keep my weekly to-do list, and every Monday, I turn over a new page. And the first thing I do is I look at all the things I didn't finish last week and I put them on this week's thing. And as the week goes along, I add new things to, do my, to my to-do list. I have never once in my adult life checked off every single thing on my to-do list in a given week. And my hunch is I'm not the only one that feels that way. And so unlike in an agrarian society where you display your status by resting, in our society, in our knowledge economy, those at the upper echelons are those who work the longest hours. And so when we talk about rest and the Sabbath, we are talking about something that we're not even entirely convinced it's a good thing. And, and there's a deep irony of that because, again, this is the fourth commandment. If you look at the Ten Commandments, you know, you shall not murder granted, right? <laughs> um, you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, that makes sense. You shall not lie. Okay, we do, but we know we shouldn't, right? Or, I mean, I can put it like this, like as one of your pastors, if I broke any of the other nine commandments, I'd probably get fired. <laughs> but if I break the fourth commandment, I might get a raise, right? Working harder is the sort of thing that we, you know, pat each other on the back for. So it's really hard for us to even understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the Sabbath because we have such a messed up and confused relationship with work. Why is that? Well, it goes all the way back to the beginning. The pattern of work followed by rest is hardwired into our being because in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, as God creates the cosmos, there is this pattern where, where we read in days 1 through 6 that God created and then he saw what he had made and he said it was very good. And over and over again, God created and God said it was good. And then he gets to the, six, the end of the sixth day where God creates human beings and then he's finished his work of creation and God says this, or it says this in Ge- the end of Genesis 1, beginning of Genesis 2. It says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Why did God rest? It wasn't because he was tired, right? It wasn't like he, was, he spent all of his resources and he was just 
exhausted, right? He rested because his work was finished. He says he did all that he was going to do, and he gets to the end of day six, and he says, it's done, it's finished, and it's great. It's very good. There's this sense of, I have done what I needed to do, and I've done it well, and now I can rest. There's this sense of satisfaction, of completeness, of everything being right with the world. Everything is now at rest. It's a deep spiritual rest. It's a rest that no amount of vacations can give you, no amount of days off can give you. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about the Sabbath. So how, how do we get that kind of rest? How do we get that kind of rest? Well, the second thing that we need to see in this passage is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We have to discover what it means that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So if you come back with me to the passage, Jesus' disciples are picking grain, and the Pharisees say, why are you breaking the Sabbath? And Jesus well, the fir- <laughs> I love the first thing Jesus says. The, dis- the Pharisees say, um, why are you breaking the Sabbath? Jesus' response is, haven't you guys read the Bible? Which is amazing because these guys had like boxes on their foreheads where they kept scripture in it. I mean, they were obsessed with reading the Bible. Jesus, ha- haven't you guys read the Bible? And then he tells this story that I'm going to come back to in a minute. And then he says this, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? I want us to wrestle with this for a minute because I think sometimes Jesus says something and we don't understand what it means. And so we think Jesus kind of walked around making these like fortune cookie sort of statements where he said something vaguely mystical but it doesn't really mean anything, and we just kind of skip past it, go on our way. Ignore what Jesus said. Smile and nod. But when it comes to talking about the Sabbath, um, we think about the Sabbath, because we think of the Sabbath as some like arcane, outdated, legalistic thing that nobody really pays attention to, and we combine that with Jesus saying something we don't understand, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, we think Jesus is saying something like, the Sabbath is an importance. We don't do that anymore. That's what the average Christian thinks. But does that really make sense of the statement, I am the Lord of the Sabbath? Okay, I'm going to give you like a fill in the blank. And just think in your head of what the last word of this sentence is, okay? Here's the, here's the statement. Fill in the last word in your head. The Lord of the, fill in the blank, Okay. I'm guessing you have one of three words in your head, either rings or flies or dance, okay? Okay, so the Lord of the Rings is a story with no rings in it, and the Lord of the Dance is a performance where nobody dances, and the Lord of the Flies is a book with no flies in it. That doesn't make any sense, right? (laughs) So it doesn't make sense then to say when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, that what he's saying is we don't do Sabbath. He's saying the opposite. He's saying, I am all about the Sabbath. I own the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. What he's saying is, I created the Sabbath. I mean, that's why when you get to the end, the, the Pharisees' takeaway is, we gotta kill this guy. <laughs> like, how does that make any sense? Jesus is saying, we need to embrace rest, and they're like, we gotta kill him. Why? why? He's saying, he's claiming to have authority. 
he, he's claiming to be the one who created the Sabbath. He's, create, he's claiming to be God. And so when the Pharisees say, why are you breaking the Sabbath? Jesus then reminds them of this place in the Old Testament where David, the king, you know, great King David, he had already been anointed the king of Israel, but he wasn't yet recognized as king. And so he's on the run from Saul, who is still the sitting king, who's growing increasingly jealous and paranoid of David. And he's, Saul has been hunting David, and David and his men have been on the run for days, and they're famished, and they're hungry, and so they go into the temple of God, and they eat the showbread, which was there for the purposes of worship and sacrifice, and was something that only the priests, the Levites, who had been consecrated as priests, were supposed to eat. But David and his men help themselves, and they eat it. And the implication here, what Jesus is saying, is that David was never condemned for doing that, and Jesus is saying, I'm doing the same thing David did. So what's the connection between David eating the bread that was only lawful for the priests and Jesus and his disciples harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Well, what Jesus is saying is just like David, who was already anointed king but not yet recognized, so Jesus is saying, I am the already anointed yet not yet recognized king. And so I have authority, just like David the king had authority, I have authority over the Sabbath. Why? Because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. I'm correcting your confusion about the Sabbath because I am the one to whom the Sabbath points. Jesus is saying, I am the embodiment of rest. You're condemning my disciples for eating grain on the Sabbath because you say that in doing, that, that when they do that, they're not resting, but I am the embodiment of rest. And that means for us two things. It means, first of all, if you want real rest, you have to go to Jesus. And then secondly, conversely, it means if you think you've gone to Jesus, but you don't have any rest, then you don't know what you really have. You've got a resource in your back pocket. You know, it's like when you put on a ski jacket and you put your hand in the pocket and there's a $20 bill that was yours the whole time, but you didn't know you had it and so you weren't using it. If you think you've gone to Jesus, but you don't have rest, you don't know what you really have. There's a great irony in this passage in verse 11. Like I said, Jesus is saying, if you want rest, come to me. And the response is, we have to get rid of this guy. And here's the irony is that it's killing Jesus that makes him the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's why he can give you rest. You know, one of the, one of the fascinating things, um, for me at least, about Jesus is how content he is. In so many situations and circumstances where an ordinary person would be kind of going out of their mind. I mean, think about how many places there are in the Gospels where Jesus is just perfectly at peace. There's a situation where he's in a boat and um, he's there with his disciples, most of whom were fishermen. They know a lot about boats and they're freaking out because there's a storm coming and they're afraid that the boat is going to capsize and sink and they're going to be destroyed. Right? This isn't like a amateur on a boat, this is hardened fishermen afraid of the storm, and it says that Jesus is asleep 
in the boat with his head on a pillow. He's content. Jesus is regularly content to disappoint people. Uh, you know when the, um, the rich young ruler comes and he asks Jesus a question and he doesn't get the answer that he wants and it says that the rich young ruler went away sad. Now, I don't know how you feel when you have a conversation with somebody and they go away sad, but usually I want to run after them and be like, no, we can, <laughs> we can change what I just said. <laughs> but Jesus is content to just let him go. They're trying to kill Jesus. There's a place that talks about their, the Pharisees are trying to, trying to grasp Jesus to kill him. And he just slips through the, through the crowd. He is consistently at peace in the most trying of circumstances, right? That's who Jesus is. And yet, that totally changes, totally changes in the final few hours of his life. After the Last Supper, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And he says to them, you guys stay here. I'm going to go over here and pray. And he says, pray for me because I am sorrowful to the point of death. Like, that's what we call depression, right? Jesus is saying, I am so sad I might die, so pray for me. And he goes and he comes back and they've all fallen asleep on him. And he wakes them up and says, why couldn't you pray for me? Couldn't you, why couldn't you stay awake for me? And then he prays to God the Father. He says, Father, is there any other way? Would you take this cup from me? And what he hears in response is nothing. Silence. And that happens three, more, uh, three total times. And then Jesus is arrested, and the next day they nail him to a cross, and as he hangs on the cross, he is writhing in pain. And he's calling out, he's crying out, and he is utterly restless. What is going on with Jesus? Why is it that Jesus you know, cool as a cucumber in the midst of a storm, is now writhing with pain and restlessness. The passage from Isaiah 57 answers that question. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 says, that, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked." There's no rest for the wicked, right? We say that. comes from Isaiah. There's a restlessness that is like the tossing sea for those who turn away from God. And here, what we're seeing is that that is the experience of Jesus on the cross. That tossing and turning can't get to sleep that sometimes plagues you in the middle of the night. That's what Jesus is undergoing, a deep, deep restlessness. And as he goes to the cross, he does so to take our place, and he takes upon himself all of our work and all of our failure, and all our attempts to cover our inner shame by building an identity for ourselves, and all of the inner turmoil and restlessness that we experience. And he takes all of our mess onto himself. And because he does that, what he gets from God is nothing. God the Father hides his face from his Son, and so Jesus experiences the inner restlessness of wickedness. But then, then Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is finished. And he entrusts himself to God. 
You remember what I said a minute ago? God finishes his work of creation. He says, it is very good and it is finished. And so God rested. In the work of creation, it's punctuated with rest because it is finished. So too in the work of redemption. Jesus takes upon himself the anxious turmoil of we who hide ourselves from God. And then he cries out, it is finished. And he entrusts himself to God in death in order to give you real life. Jesus is restless so that you might find real rest. Jesus completes his work to redeem your work. And that is what makes it really really possible to rest. Just knocking off at the end of the day, you know, working as hard as we can, as long as we can, and then knocking off with an occasional vacation, an occasional long weekend, will never get you the kind of deep REM rest for the soul that we need. But when you know the real work, that the real work of your life, the struggle to prove your worth, that it is actually finished, that it has been accomplished by the one, by the only one whose opinion really matters, then you can work hard with the freedom to fail and you can actually rest. I don't know if you remember the name Greg Louganis. Um, Greg Louganis was an Olympic diver if you would have asked me yesterday, how old is Greg Luganis, I would have said probably in his 40s. He's in his 60s. I'm in my 40s. So I remember in 1988 in the Olympics watching Greg Luganis dive. And uh, you might remember he did a dive and he hit his head on the diving board and just fell um, into, the, into the pool. Greg Louganis was known for kind of being like a mess in the earlier rounds of the competition. But then um, in the final dive, when, when he's under pressure, he was just perfectly poised and composed. Greg Louganis is the only man to ever sweep all events in uh, the diving competition in two consecutive Olympic Games in 1984 and 1988. Just incredibly talented. You know, like, it happened twice, actually, in a competition that he hit his head on the, on the board and fell unconscious into the water. And yet, super calm under pressure, like a knife into the water when it matters. And so, a reporter once asked him, how did he do that? You know, how do you stand there in front of the world in Speedos and just kill it when it matters? And this is what Greg Luganis said. He said, I stand there... And I tell myself that no matter what happens, my mother will still love me. (laughs) And he says that kind of love gives you a lot of confidence. And that's really beautiful, isn't it? Even if I belly flop, I am still loved. Do you know that the only one whose opinion of you really matters looks at you because he has accepted you in his son and says, you are my child and I love you, and I'm happy with you. And you know what? I, like, I get a kick out of you working so hard. <laughs> it's like me watching my kids, you know? They're trying so hard. I just love watching them. That's how God loves watching you. And that's what you need to experience real rest. Without that, we'll never get that deep REM soul rest. Okay, so how then... If we know that, how then do we actually do Sabbath? How do we actually rest? Okay, super briefly, 
I want to give you two convictions and three tips, okay? Two convictions. Without these, the tips won't do anything for you, but two convictions. First is that Sabbath is about restoration. I know I didn't say much about the second kind of part of this passage, but um, there's this other incident on another Sabbath that says that Jesus restores this man's withered hand. And what Jesus is showing us is that Sabbath is about God making all things right again. So the weekly practice of a day of rest is not some legalistic obligation that God burdens his people with. Rather, it's about our Father saying, hey, let me help you discover a rhythm of life that will restore the way you are meant to function. That will actually restore your humanity. The Sabbath is about God making all things right Again, you are a human being, not a human doing, as Pete Scazzaro says. Okay, Sabbath is about restoration, but secondly, it's about freedom. Sabbath is not this obligation that God puts on his people to restrict us. Sabbath is about freedom. The Ten Commandments begin with with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is saying, Because I have set you free, therefore, I want you to honor the Sabbath. I want you to rest one day a week. Sabbath is about freedom. God gives his people the Sabbath after setting them free from 430 years of slavery, 430 years without a day off. And what that means is that if you can't take a day off, you're not free, you're a slave. If we can't rest, it's because there is something that is forcing us. And we're slaves to that thing. Sabbath is about freedom and Sabbath is about restoration. So if we understand those two convictions, then three things to actually engage in Sabbath. And the first is we have to start with worship. We have to start with worship. Um, We begin by reminding ourselves who God is and we begin by reminding ourselves who we are in light of him. Again, Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. We have to begin with worship to remind yourself who we are. Secondly, we need unstructured time. There was a practice in ancient Israel where every seven years they were to give the land a Sabbath. And what they did in the, in the Sabbath year was they just didn't let, they didn't plant anything and just anything that comes up, they just let it grow. All right? We have to have unstructured time. It's not about having to do something. It's not about planning out the perfect Sabbath so that we get all of the right ingredients in. You know, a great idea, I think, would be for a week to keep track of all the times that we say we have to do something. Um, what, do, what are the things that we're telling ourselves that we have to do? Sabbath is about just seeing what happens. It's about resting. Abraham Heschel, who was a, uh, a rabbi in the, in the middle of the last century, he said, if you work with your hands, Sabbath with your mind. If you work with your mind, Sabbath with your hands. If you're a knowledge worker, go for a hike. Uh, build something. Make dinner for your family. Uh, if you enjoy doing that, <laughs> take your time. My kids used to think that Sabbath meant dessert before dinner. Um, my wife has implemented this f- practice in our family where I mean, we haven't done it in a couple of weeks, but I guess we're probably going to do it today, right? Um, where we have dessert before dinner. And for a while, one of my kids thought the word Sabbath meant dessert before dinner. It was great. Unstructured time. Finally, you have to learn how to say no. 
We're going to have to learn how to say no. And Sabbath is not about like say no to the things that are bad. There was this moment, Brad and I were at Presbytery this week, where um, Brad turned to me and said, do you want me to nominate you for this committee? And I was like, that makes me feel so important, but I have to say no. (laughs) I cannot do all of the things and be able to rest. We have to learn how to say no to things that are good to enjoy God's rest. And so that involves trusting God. Eugene Peterson has this great quote. He says, if we do not regularly quit work for one day a week, we take ourselves far too seriously. If we do not rest one day a week, we take ourselves far too seriously. Sabbath is about learning how to rest by trusting God to take care of what we're doing, what what needs to be done while we're not doing it. B&H Photo, I'll finish with this is a, uh, if you know anything about photography, you've probably heard of B&H Photo. Uh, if you're like sort of into photography, you buy your stuff on Amazon. If you're really into photography, you buy it from B&H Photo. And B&H Photo is famous, they're, they're run by, um, uh, it's a Jewish company based out of Brooklyn, New York, and they are closed on Saturday. So their, their physical store is closed on, on Saturday. Um, but their website, you can go look at their website and you can put stuff in your shopping cart, but you cannot check out from their website on Saturday. And several years ago, they were closed on Black Friday and a, and a reporter did an interview with somebody in their um, office and said, how, how can you just walk away from the biggest shopping day of the year? You stand to make so much money on this one day of the year you're the most reputable photography you know, retailer in the country. How can you justify being closed on that day? And his response was simple. He said, we answer to a different authority. And Sabbath is about learning how to trust that you have a father who knows you, who loves you, who knows how you operate best, and he can take care of it. And so he invites you to truly rest. Okay, I'm going to look at... Questions that have come in. Okay, can you give an example of a time when you practiced Sabbath rest and a time you were resting but it wasn't a Sabbath rest? What is the difference between the two? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure if I'll be able to come up with an example uh, in the spur of the moment. Um, I'm sure my wife has got a great example right now. Um, you know, I okay, so... You can, um, I can scroll social media for a long period of time. Have you ever done this, like, you're looking at your computer and you're bored, and so you, like, open up a new tab and go to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, and then you realize that actually what you had been doing was actually looking at that same website? I've done that before. Like, I've been looking at Facebook going, this is boring, I want to go do something, so I open up a browser and look at Facebook. And so there's this like doing nothingness that is just sort of like anxiously passing the time um, that doesn't actually contribute to restfulness. You know, on the other hand, uh, it was Mother's Day last year. We were at my parents' house, and I, I said I was going to make dinner for, um, on Mother's Day, which is on a Sunday. And um, I love making homemade pasta, bolognese, and, and noodles from scratch, and it takes like six hours and I start cooking in the kitchen, and my dad's sitting there watching, and he's like, after like three hours, he's like, this is a really involved recipe here. But it's just, it's super restful and relaxing. 
to open a bottle of wine and take my time and just prepare a good meal. I love having the chance to do that. So those are a couple examples. Um, next question. How would you... Uh, how would you speak to a Seventh-day Adventist about the freedom to worship on days other than Saturday? You know, there's, I mean, there's a theological question there. I'm probably not going to get into the, the nuance here. Um, I, I would say the, the, the question is more about which day we should um, observe as the, as the Christian Sabbath. And it's, it's very clear from the earliest you know, chapters of the book of Acts that the New Testament church immediately began um, to worship on Sunday in in um, commemoration of Jesus' resurrection, but also is sort of a statement that we begin with rest. Um, I don't know if this is even something that like we're really aware of, but Saturday is the last day of the week, Sunday is the first day of the week, and so really what we're saying is we begin with rest. So we're not working really hard in order to rest, but we're actually beginning our week each week with God's rest. Again, we could talk more about that if that was you. Um, if you want to talk after the service, last question, how would you encourage someone struggling with clinical anxiety or depression, either because of psychology and or trauma? How do we trust the spiritual promises and experience the contentment you describe when we feel like our physiology refuses to cooperate? Um, I would, I would, the first thing I would say is I would see a psychiatrist. Um, I would get help. Um, I would take medication if a psychiatrist prescribed it to me. Um, th th there is a... Um, I, I, some of these realities, I think, are things that as a church community... I mean, can you imagine if we were a church that was known for being restful people and that part of the way we did that each week was gathering together and nobody has to do anything afterwards, right? We don't have to rush off. We don't have to get to this other commitment, but that there was like a togetherness and an enjoyment that characterized our resting together on the Lord's day. Now, that's what I think the Bible is holding out as an invitation for all Christians everywhere. But there, each of us have particular challenges and, and particular struggles that make uh, different parts of what God invites us to difficult for us. And so if you're a person who, because of trauma or physiology, um, struggles with anxiety, I would, I would deeply encourage you to get professional help um, to help you work that out. And again, I'd be happy to talk more about that if you want to talk about that after the, after the service. Let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's table. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself up in order to fill us up. That you were tormented so that we might have peace. That you died so that we might have life. And we pray that uh, this Sabbath, this Lord's Day, we would maybe all just collectively take a breath and learn to think about uh, worship not as something that we have to do, but as a reminder of who you are that is the beginning of a day of rest because you know us, you made us, and you give us yourself. And so as we come to your table, would you feed us, we pray, in your name, Jesus. Amen. It's fitting that 
the one who calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, invites us to remember him, uh, not by reading a book, not by memorizing something, not by working really hard, but by coming to a meal. And so it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And after they had eaten, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And Paul says, as often as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is a table for Jesus' people, not for perfect people, but for those who are saying, I'm looking to Jesus for rest.